Just a reminder that next Sunday, we will be beginning our third Sunday's prayer and discernment service. And I encourage you, even this week, to kind of be preparing your heart to come and we'll have a little different kind of service, be focused on prayer and pausing and listening. And uh, you might get here a little bit early. There'll be some music beforehand and just to kind of come and sit and, and prepare your hearts for that. Well, Exodus is a book about liberation, about God liberating Israel from the bondage of slavery. And here's how we've been thinking about liberation in Exodus during our study. Our own Laura Lyson explains it like this. God's liberating work is the total liberation of creaturely life from sin and death and all its forms to fullness of life and relationship with God and all God's creatures. God is the God who liberates totally even as we wait for that reality to come fully in our bodies, in our hearts, and in our societies. Well, one of the messages that we've been studying in Exodus is that God invites us to join him in this liberating work. Yeah, we join him as he liberates us from our own personal sin. We join us as he liberates the world from death. But joining God in his work in the world and in our hearts requires faith. Israel learns this lesson the hard way. In the portion of Exodus that we study tonight, chapter 32, uh, if you've been with us, you'll remember Yahweh has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He has given Israel a leader in Moses. He passes over the Israelites' homes when the angel of death comes because they're covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. He rescues them when Egypt's armies trap them at the shores of the Red Sea. He provides water for them when they are thirsty. He provides manna for them when they are hungry. He gives them his law to show them how to live as his covenant people. He tells them to build a tabernacle because he wants to dwell with them. And so that gets us all the way up to chapter 31. And so we see a people who are living as beloved people, living as people who have been rescued, people who have tasted grace, people who have uh, known God's covenant mercy. There's this beautiful Hebrew word, hesed, which talks about the covenant mercy of God. And the people of Israel have experienced that love and that mercy. Then Moses stays too long on the mountain. And it all falls apart. Here's the opening verse. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Moses stays up there for 40 days. He's 80 years old. Naturally, they begin to wonder if he died up there. And he has been their leader, their mediator, and he's not coming back, it appears, and they become anxious. And God seems far away and 
in their anxiety, in the delay of God's response to their need, they make an idol. Verse 2, so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This would have been a very common worship practice in the ancient world. Uh, creating an animal and uh, ascribing it divine characteristics and worshiping it. But one of the things that I, I think we should notice in this little passage is that Aaron wants to make this and apparently feels that this is somehow an appropriate way to respond as the followers of Yahweh. That this, this isn't rejecting Yahweh, it's just assimilating a little bit from the culture so that they can worship when God seems far away. He talks about, these are your gods. And the Hebrew plural is Elohim, and that is one of the Hebrew names for God. And some commentators think, this golden calf is somehow a representation of Elohim. So even though it's a, it's, it's a cow, uh, it's really the same thing, don't worry. And then he says, it's very interesting, he says, tomorrow there'll be a feast to the Lord. And the Lord is Yahweh. So he's, he's adding this idol and he's saying, let's make this a part of our worship. Let's, uh, let's assimilate this cultural idolatry and, and, and make, syncretize it with our worship of Yahweh. What could be wrong with that? Everybody else is doing it. So if true faith is trusting in God to keep us safe and secure, significant, idolatry is adding something else. God plus. My faith is in God, but I can't really see or feel him right now, so I'll add this. Idolatry in the new covenant then would be trusting in Jesus plus something that helps me feel safe and secure and significant. What's your gold calf? What do you turn to in times of anxiety to feel safe and secure and that your life has meaning? 
Now, I, I think sermons go off the rails at this point, and I've preached a few that have gone off the rails at this point, that imply that any kind of pleasure or self-care or joy or diversion is an idol. Jesus is all you need, the preacher says, and if you, if you find joy or pleasure in anything else, that's idolatry. And I, 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 I hope we see that that's misbalanced. God does give us baseball, and some Sundays are, that's more fun than others. And good food and drink and good TV shows and friendships and hugs, all is part of his common grace. It's not wrong to enjoy life. That's not idolatry. It is not necessarily idolatry to enjoy a beer after a long week. Sometimes a beer is just a beer. But if the one beer turns into another beer and then a beer every night and then I can't really feel any peace without a beer, then I've ventured into idolatry. It's not idolatry to care about politics. We should. But if that care becomes constant doom scrolling and an identification with a party or a candidate that starts to separate you from other people, and if you feel anxious when the one you want isn't in office, something is moving into idolatry. It's not idolatry to want to be successful in life, to have an impact in life, to make a difference in the world, but if I'm not as successful as I'd hoped to be. And that leads me to cynicism and depression. No, I've made an idol out of success. It's not idolatry to find life and joy and encouragement from good friendships like the ones Anne described tonight. But if you give your friend the power to redeem or destroy you, your friend has become an idol. If you cannot be okay when your friend is not okay, your friend has become an idol. It's not idolatry to care about your, your body. It's a good thing. But if you find yourself depressed when your iPhone coughs up a photo stream of you 10 years ago at the beach and you realize that, wow, I'm aging, And the person you love most in the picture is dead now and your mother is in a nursing home and you've been there and it's depressed you and you realize that's where it ends and uh, you start to despair. Well, something's moved towards idolatry. We moved my dad into an assisted living home last week. Uh, moved him into a independent living home a year ago and uh, lots of good times with dad but, but probably been the most focused time of my life dealing with dear people navigating the shoals of, of aging and over the past month particularly he's been in the hospital for three weeks in rehab and we just moved him in and so all sorts of things I just don't think a lot about and powers of attorney and the best kind of wheelchair and the best kind of adult diapers and all these things. And I was thinking about this, praying about this, because um, I felt a little depressed coming home from a visit with him. And I noticed something that's corresponded to my increasing involvement with uh, 
my father's aging. I'm becoming obsessed with swimming. I've increased my workouts. I signed up for more meets. I'm researching adequate paddle sizes for older master swimmers. A lot of energy going into it. Now, is it a bad thing to work out? No. But there's a fine line between healthy exercise and an obsession. And when I get a text on Tuesday morning that says we can't train because there's thunder and I'm in a bad mood the rest of the day, eh, sounds like a little idolatry to me. A friend pointed out to me, idolatry is kind of harder today to see. I mean, in, in the ancient world, you know, gold calf, okay, that's, that's an idol. But he pointed out, idolatry, idolatry today can be ideology. I just feel like there's so much to unpack in that. And I, I'm not even sure. That, when he said that, I thought, wow, I think that is so... We can worship ideologies and identities. We're going to do a series on rebuilding faith in July. And then in August, I want to do six weeks with you from the book of Revelation. But I, I'm, going to, I'm going to offer an alternative way to read it that's different than the way most of us have read it as a code book to the end times. I actually don't think it's about that at all. If you do, that's fine. You'll sell more books. Uh, I think it's about idolatry and living faithfully in the empire. And I want to kind of tease that out with you uh, a little bit. But in today's world, ideologies can become our idolatry. One last point, then we'll move on. Some depression, not all by any means, sometimes, if you are really struggling with depression, it's God trying to reveal an idol in your life. And because you can't have what you demand and that you think you need to be secure and significant, you become depressed. Certainly not the only reason for depression at all. But if you're struggling with depression and you're wondering, why? Why am I so sad? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so disappointed? Ask yourself, what are my idols? Am I asking something or someone other than God to make me safe and secure? Well, God, as we might imagine, is not pleased with the fickleness of his people. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord as God. He said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the lands of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? 
Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented. (laughs) King James says, repented. (laughs) Okay. Uh, From the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, there's all sorts of theological questions that a story like this brings up. I mean, God says to Moses, all right, I'm fed up with these people. I'd like to wipe them out and start again with you. And Moses says, hey, remember your promises. Remember your witness. And and God says, all right, all right, enough. Here is one way I've learned to read wild passages like this. Let the Bible be weird. There are ways to explore this theologically. We got a little class called Campfire by the Margins. They talk a lot about ways of reading scripture. I can get you books. I can meet with you. We can talk about this. People write dissertations on on this. People have tenure because they wrote dissertations on this. But what I would suggest is let the Bible be weird. Oh, no, no, no. I need, I need it all to make sense. I, it's got to all line up. It's got to all fit. That's Kiwanis. It's not going to happen. The Bible's too crazy for that. Let it be weird. Just listen to it. Don't try to make it all fit. Just ask, what's God trying to teach me through this? And here is one lesson I hear in this story. When you become ensnared in idolatry... You need an intercessor to help get you out. When you become ensnared in idolatry, you need an intercessor to get you out. When you get to a point in your life where maybe that idol has become so powerful And remember, this is subtle stuff. This is often ideology. This is stuff that's below the iceberg. This is not real visible. This is not having a beach ball in your living room that you bow down to three times a day. It's not that easy. It's very subtle. There is a spiritual power that comes in when we worship idols and idolatry takes place in our heart that dulls our senses. And sometimes the only way we can escape is when an intercessor climbs the mountain of God for us and reminds him of his promises. I can't resolve all the theological puzzles in this story, but I tell you, it resonates with me on a very deep level because this is how the spiritual life really, really works. We turn from God's covenant love It's one of the greatest paradoxes of life, isn't it? That God would love us so much, do so much for us, demonstrate his love for us in so many ways. And the moment we become anxious, we turn to an idol. 
we build a compromised faith of Jesus plus. And our anxiety drives us to seek the comfort of lesser gods. I think anybody who's dealt with an addiction knows this. Of course, there's chemical and relational roots to addiction, but anybody who has dealt with an addiction, there's a spiritual power at work. And we need an intercessor to plead with God on our behalf. You know, one of the best things you can do to overcome an idol, especially if you feel powerless to do so, go have coffee with a friend and say, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on with me in politics. But I am so upset by what I read and I can't stop reading it. Would you please, please intercede for me? Oh, Moses comes down the mountain, sees the people worshiping the calf and smashes the two tablets, confronts Aaron. Yahweh disciplines Israel and then Moses intercedes for the people but this time it doesn't go so well. There's a fascinating study on prayer in here if you ever wanted to do that. The Lord said to Moses, depart, see if you can notice it. Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying to your offspring I will give it. Now watch this, I will send an angel before you. Do you remember the whole point of 25 to 30 and then later 35 to 40? God's presence. The distinctive mark of the people of God is the presence of God. And now God says, ah, that's off. You go on your mission, but I'll tell you what, I'll send an angel. And I will send an angel before you and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're stiff-necked if for a single moment I should go up among you. I'd consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. You know, there's a bunch of theological riddles in there, right? And then how does this apply in the new covenant? And why would God do this? And um, They're still his people. They still have his mission. There's even hope, but his presence won't go. He's going to send an angel instead. What is this saying? Well, I suppose it's saying many things. Here's what it said to me and I've been thinking about this passage for several months talking with Anna a lot about it as we worked on the series together 
And I'm just going to share this not as a, this is what God's word says. I'm just going to share this as this is what has come up for me in prayer around this passage. I'm, I'm not sure I'm right, but this is just what's come up. For some time now, my sense is that God has sent an angel to go with us at All Souls Church, but we have lacked the fullness of his presence. Could be wrong, but as I pray and sit with this text, that's what keeps coming up, that God is with us in a way, but for some reason the fullness of his presence is not. And yes, this can happen to churches. Read Revelation 2 to 3. I am not aware of a gold calf in our midst. I think we are a faithful people. You are generous and loving and God-fearing. I am not aware of a golden calf in our midst. And of course, all of us have idols. We turn from every week, every day. That's part of the Christian life. But my prayer has been, Lord, it feels like you've only given us an angel. We want your full presence. Reveal our idolatries and fill us with your spirit. I was praying this one morning and Paige texted and said, could I come by? Something's on my mind. And when she came by, she shared her vision, her sense that we needed as a church family uh, to have a series of special services where we stopped and paused and, and prayed. And, and, and I, I felt like that was an answer to, to my prayer. That, that to whatever degree there's a idolatry in my heart, in our hearts, prayer and intercession might expose it and help us move beyond it. Now, here's a little homework assignment for this week as we prepare for next week's service. I really do not want you to focus on the idolatry of our church. Don't don't go there, not right now. Start with your own heart. Start personally. And I'd like you to do two things. I'd like you to just pray a simple prayer. God, what are the idols in my life? What are the idols in my life? And then second, have a conversation with someone you know well and just say, hey, we're going into this time of discernment. We're trying, I'm trying to just see what my disordered attachments are. What are those things in my life where I seek security and significance apart from God? Uh, I wonder if we could get coffee and I'd, I'd kind of like to know what you think. I'd like to share with you what's coming up for me and I'd like to hear what, what you think.
And again, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of this. You know, we don't, we're not going to put them all on the board afterwards. And, and, and honestly, I, I do not want you to be thinking about, well, I know what it is. All souls doesn't have full presence because of this happened two years ago. I'm not asking you to do that. Do your work inside first. And if God wants us to see something collectively, we will, but not before we do our own work. Honestly, I've, I've been in a, too many experiences where when I say something like this in a sermon, people immediately project their, their particular pet peeve with the church and say, well, this is it because you're not doing what I want you to do. I don't really need that. We don't really need that. I think it's a great time for us to look at the idolatry in our own hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I'm, I'm not a prophet. And what I sense when I'm in my study or on my deck with you, it may just be between you and me. Well, this is my family, and tonight I felt led to share with them what I was healing, hearing in my own prayer closet. And I just pray if it's, if it's not for the whole community, just let it fall to the to the ground Lord we learn tonight that when when we set up idols in our hearts it just hurts you so deeply that your presence can't fully abide with us until it's dealt with and that's what happens in the last part of the book of Exodus it's dealt with So Holy Spirit, would you, go, would you gently go about the work of exposing idols in our hearts? And could we be the kind of community where it's safe to explore those, but also where there's enough challenge that we, we move away from them? Your spirit is the distinguishing mark of the people of God. And this family does not want to go into the promised land of her future with just an angel. So come, Holy Spirit. In your name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord.